welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nipin Anand. This podcast series is meant to bring you different perspectives and concepts in safety. The idea really is to create space for thinking and reflection, not to reinforce any grand theories or our prior knowledge on a subject. The aim is to learn and grow, not to remain stagnant. And of course, as I keep saying, there is no reason for you to believe me or any so-called expert, but keep an open mind and be prepared to challenge your beliefs if you truly want to learn more than what you knew yesterday. Today, I speak with Cindy Nandlal, another close friend who serves as a HEC manager in a rapid organization in Trinidad and Tobago, as you will soon discover from an accent. In this podcast, Cindy shares her unique position as a senior manager who is also appointed as a board member on three different boards. Now that's pretty unique for a HEC manager. As I listened and reflected on this podcast, I found out how she has transformed from being who she was to a very reflective, humble and empathetic person. All the signs of a great leader. One of the reasons she has been so influential and successful in her career is her ability to listen and understand the business context, even down to the language, before making any attempt to influence change. Something all of us as safety professionals can learn from. So I do hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I like talking to Cindy. And if you wish to contact her, she's on LinkedIn by the name of Cindy Nandlal. I will spell it out to you. It says C-I-N-D-I-N-A-N-D-L-A-L. So enjoy it. So tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into the topic. Well, I live in Trinidad, which is in the Caribbean. I've been in the health and safety field for about 21 years, but I have to say my safety journey really started about 15 years ago when I experienced a workplace fatality at my job. And I think until then, I was not clear what being a safety professional meant. To me, it was a, a job about policing and you know, you go outside on the plant and on the field and you tell people what they have to do and you correct them. But that was such a rude awakening to what safety is about. And for me, Nippin has changed so much in the last couple of years. Like I feel so uncomfortable with my knowledge and what I did. And looking through the lens of human and organizational performance, I feel a little bit almost guilty sometimes. Because that new knowledge brought such weight to me that when I reflected on my practice and how I operated and how people saw me, I felt as if not was not doing the discipline justice. Wow. And what was the transformation? Talk me through that. What, what was so different about it? In my younger days, I would have to say I was very black and white. It was either or. It was rules, break the rules or discipline. You know, during plant turnarounds, I was known as the person that if I caught you breaking the rules, especially significant rules, you would be walked out the plant and debarred from coming back in. No explanation. <laughs> so I did have that reputation. I would not try to put myself in other people's shoes. I would not think that they were human. And I believed it was very black and white. And what happened then? 
there's pivots in your career when you start to see change. And I remember I actually myself was involved in a little incident and it started sort of my awakening. So I worked on a process plant at the time and the process plant used 98% sulfuric acid. So very potent stuff. And they kept all of it behind a plexiglass. So it's enclosed. And one day I was walking to another part of the plant because we had a problem and I was trying to figure out in my mind how we were going to resolve it. And one of the operators came to me very quickly and he said, you know, come quickly. We have a problem and I want you to see it. So I followed him. I, I was I was still thinking about the problem. I didn't really wasn't paying attention to where he was going. And I followed him into the bonded area where the acid was and the doors were open and in order to get there you have to really put on an acid suit because of the hazard and as soon as I walked in and I followed him and I I kind of looked around and I went wait where are we and I was like no we we're not supposed to be here we're supposed to have on an acid suit right so I left went to resolve the problem went back to the control room and the operator goes to me, he said, well, you know, that's all secret, right? Because if you get in trouble, I get in trouble. So I said, up until then, you know, I was sort of seen as the person on the pedestal, the queen of safety on the site. And I thought, no, this is not me. So I went and I reported myself to the shift supervisor. And I had to put in an incident log on the system, which then dispatches to the site. NAMIS on potential exposure to acid. Had to work through the incident investigation. And the question was, well, didn't you know that was not a safe area? And then in my mind, I thought, yeah, but I was distracted and I really didn't think about where I was going. And then it dawned on me how I was judging other people. So that was the start and the shift gave me a very difficult time. They made me feel really bad about it. They made me come and present as to how it would never happen again, which was in itself humiliating. But truth be told, about six months after, the shift supervisor came and said that if they respected me before, they respected me five times more because I was willing to put myself on the line. I admitted I, I went into an area that nobody would have known if I didn't put it. And now I understand how they feel. <laughs> so that was the start for me. And then the next pivot was when I saw Todd Coughlin talking about the new view in a conference. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I thought myself to be very up to date with HSE. So I bought his book. Bought a couple more books, including Sydney Decker, and that's kind of where my, my human and organizational performance journey starts. And as you know, we connected last year, and that has also helped me tremendously because, you know, like you, I believe language sets the tone for the organization. And I think it's a powerful either medium for culture or something that could damage your culture. Fascinating. What a beautiful story, Cindy. Truth be told, I don't tell it often. <laughs> well, now it's all up in the air. <laughs> What's interesting to me is the immense sense of self-reflection. That obviously, you know, many of us have been on this journey where we have been caught not following the rules. But what did we really learn from that? And here's somebody who has been transformed as a result of one experience. But you also mentioned that you, that you witnessed a fatality, isn't it? Would you want to talk to about, about that as well? 
I would have to say I was a neophyte at that time, working in a high hazard plant. Um, so I've been in high hazard my whole career. And basically what happened is that this plant was not a common technology plant. So at the time we made something called steel briquettes, which is taking molten metal and making briquettes. And the plant had been down for a week. Everything was open except for one vessel. And we had guys working on all floors. Uh, so it was those grated floors. And they decided to test a valve on a vessel that was not open. And basically direct reduced iron ore, which is pyrophoric, uh, sort of like black sand, came down. And as it's coming down, because it's pyrophoric, it basically ignited into like, like a ball. And, and I remember it because... I'm walking to the plant and I see this black dust coming and then this fireball. And there were three guys working in different floors. And the one, there was one guy immediately below and it, it landed on him. And, and it, it heats up at hundreds of degrees, right? So it's really, really hot to the point that his helmet was melted. And basically he got uh, significantly burned. He ended up dying a couple of days after. And I remember days stick in your mind as we were taking him down because it was about maybe about 10 floors up. So we had to walk him down in a stretcher. His co-workers, which had all evacuated, they had all evacuated. They stood in a line and they were basically threatening us, you know, and I remember hearing a few of them saying, you know, you want to police PPE and you want to tell us what to do and, and look what happened. And you're just sort of in a robotic mode at that time. You're just trying to kind of get through the moment. When we, we got to the hospital, the family, of course, very angry, very upset. Lawyers get involved. So, so you're not allowed to talk to the family at that point. But yeah, it was a really traumatic event. And one of the things that stood out in my mind, Nippin, is he had a two-year-old daughter. And when he died a couple of days later, in one of the front pages of the paper was a picture that I kept of the two-year-old with a, a comforter in her mouth standing up next to his, his coffin. I, I still have it because I look at it and I reflect on this is what we do. This is what our profession has to, to stop or prevent. And that is always in the back of my mind. And that drove sometimes the passion at which I did things and, and that passion may have come out when I look back as regimented this way or how it occurred to people was not the way I think I could have been successful but it was as a result of experiencing something so traumatic and I went to the hospital every day because the, we had two other guys that were burned. And it, it really humanizes you. You know, you, you're there with the family. You, you get the news when the person passes. For that particular fatality, we weren't allowed to go to the funeral, you know. But I've experienced more after that, unfortunately. And I've, I've gone to the funerals and it's, it's traumatic. It's, I don't know them. I don't know their family. But I, I know what it would be like if, if I didn't have a father. You know, and that's how I relate. Yeah, this is interesting because, you know, what you're pointing towards is this, this whole idea that uh, one of your roles uh, as a safety professional is, is to end all the suffering in the world. Decker puts it in a very beautiful words, actually, uh, this existential need to put an end to sufferings. 
but um, how useful is that emotion to bring about the transformation that, uh, that, that you wanted to achieve? And one of the things that caught me was that when the workers, as you were negotiating your way out of that space, you know, with, with a dead worker or, or, or an injured worker, heavily injured, burnt worker, and somebody said to you, the workers came in the way and, and said something, I'm interested to hear what was the deeper message? What is it that they were trying to tell you? Yeah, that, that's a very powerful question, Nippin. If I reflect on that, looking back with what I know now, it was basically saying that we did not do what we all we could have to have prevented that from occurring. We were only looking at the things that are superficial or surface level. And I, and I would admit that would be the case because at the time, PPE was, though not considered a hazard control, it was the most visible thing that you would see. And back then as well, having significant injuries on a plant like that was normalized. It wasn't abnormal the way it is now. But it drove a guilt that every time I've experienced a significant injury, and I, I've had another experience, I had another one recently in the last five years, there's a guilt that you always think, what could I have done differently? And with that particular fatality, I had actually passed through the area about two hours before. And I also think, what if it was me? What could I have done differently? That is always in my mind. So any opportunity or job that I have and I'm outside and I see something, I don't walk past it because I know that if I do, I'm condoning or, or I'm blinding to the fact that I need to do something, even though that I know that something may be difficult or may cause people discomfort or more work or something. I can't just walk away because I'm so guilty. Uh, and I know what that guilt is like. Yeah, but uh, Cindy, I'm just playing the devil's advocate here. You know, implicit in what you are trying to say is that you know this 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 goes back to the same idea of behavioral intervention. That if if you are vigilant enough, uh, and if you can spot the errors, and if you can spot the the unsafe practices, then you can somehow avoid accidents. And what I'm trying to see is that. How useful is that approach, uh, you know, wearing, with that kind of mindset, going on site visits, looking at spot, trying to spot unsafe practices to, to make the system safer? Because where do you draw that line between what is unsafe and what is safe in an inherently uh, unstable environment? So when I go out on the field, Nippin, I'm not looking for at-risk behavior necessarily. I'm looking at what are the signals that I could trace back to a potential issue. For example, as simplistic as a contractor, let's say not wearing his safety glasses, leads me back to how the contractor company provides PPE for their workers and what quality and how often. And I don't focus on the worker before because I know and I understand now because of my experience that context drives behavior and that context could be generated from how the business is set up, how they spend money, where they don't spend money, how they train, how they don't train. Um, so even the things that I would have noticed before, you know, like maybe 10 years ago, unsafe behavior, and I would have been very harsh in treating that. Now I recognize that that behavior comes from either accepted practice, a lack of interventions by, by the company, 
or overall philosophy that that particular contractor company does not value life and limb the way that I do. And when there's a mismatch in values, then having incidents and injuries are almost a given after that. Because being a, an operating plant or a contractor company, if you have mismatched values, and I've seen it happen to, to some significant events, but you don't have the requisite intervention mechanisms to say, this is not what we value. This is not our approach, depending on whose side you're on. If you're on the operating company side, you have more power and influence as opposed to if you are a contractor working for an operating company, you can't say, well, you don't have value for safety, so I'm not going to take this job. So it's a little more complex. But for me, that has been one of kind of a distinct difference. Yeah, well, what I take from this conversation is that uh, with all that experience, uh, including the ones that have transformed you in your life, one of the things I, I, I understand what you're trying to do is you're trying to connect the micro with the macro. So you see those behaviors and you try to put them in some sort of a structure. I mean, the, the way you describe it is, is less of a context and more of a structure. That, you know, how is the organization uh, actually facilitating the worker to do the right thing? This goes back to, uh, to, to my mind, at least, and the way you explain it is, is, is Andrew Hopkins' work. Uh, that you know, what incentivizes people in the organization to do the right thing or otherwise? You know, somewhere down the line, we have become too bogged into the idea of context drives behavior. Yes, the context does drive behavior, but there's something beyond that context. And, and you, you, you listen to to Andrew Hopkins' uh, yeah. podcast also. I know you had some some great ideas there. But what, what what do you think about that, Cindy? I think he's right, and structure does drive safety. It's not advisable, for example, for me. I think the HSE manager should report to the most senior person in the organization and not necessarily, for example, a plant manager who manages operations um, because you want a sort of independent connection into the most senior person in the organization. And that's structure. You know, one of the topics uh, we would talk about is whether the board is structured with a safety subcommittee or an operations committee that talks about safety, that structure from the top of the organization uh, dictates what safety looks and feels like all the way down, including the culture of the organization. So very much agreed with Andrew on that. And Andrew uses BP quite a bit in his books as an example of how complexity and structure can greatly impact safety. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very much a, a fan of his work and he understands it at a pragmatic level because, you know, sometimes you hear all these nice concepts, error and blame, and, and you have to figure out in your organization, how do I make that work in a palatable way that aligns to the organization cadence, you know, so that people don't see it as this nebulous thing that I'm talking about and they can't relate to it. And that is that is a challenge of the practitioner. It is how do you take these terms and these philosophies and get them down into the organization at a cellular level that is both practical and workable in the organization. That is the challenge. I'm no longer believer in best practice because 
I believe an organization is like a living organism. You cannot take one thing from one organization and plug it into another organization and expect the same results. It just doesn't work. Absolutely. And one of the reasons for having you on this podcast is that you are a living example of a person who actually sits on that board, isn't it? Very, very rarely safety practitioners get the opportunity to sit on that board. Bringing it back to our discussion about, you know, your, your experiences with field visits, where you try to connect the micro with the macro, where when you see something, you try to relate it with something systemic. For example, somebody not wearing uh, uh, safety goggles or the right PPE, and how does that relate to, to the bigger questions here? I just felt it, it would be a remarkable opportunity here. You know, if you can reflect on how do you relate this discussion with your, your unique position of sitting in the boardroom as somebody who's so uniquely positioned in that, in that role? Yeah, so I, I was actually at, at the board level at my previous organization. So I, I sat on at least three boards of subsidiary companies. And it really came from a few things, Nippin. One is, for me, sitting on a board as a person with an HSE hat, what is allowed for me to do first is listen and understand to how boards operate without me first putting any judgment or putting, trying to figure out how do I get to that point that you're speaking of, because it was all new space to me and to the point sometimes I felt like a bit of an imposter sitting in, in a boardroom, you know, talking about strategic direction of a, of a company, you know, so these conversations were new. But what it did for me was help me understand how boards as a collective think and operate and what are the, the sort of governance structures and stuff they operate within. And it also helped me listen for the language of the board as it relates to decisions that could impact safety one way or the other. Um, whether it was, for example, you defer uh, capital expenditure because the company just didn't make enough money and that deferral could uh, impact upgrades of equipment uh, later on. So, so that's the kind of conversation that you have to sort of listen for and try to figure out, okay, how is this going to impact the frontline worker? You know, companies, especially in these times, you know, where companies are losing a lot of money, business is difficult. You don't have the luxury of huge profit margins to be upgrading equipment and buying new technologies. And you have to be able to work with either what you have or try to adjust your sort of controls uh, as you can, because that, that's how companies operate, uh, especially in these times. It's not these billion dollar profit centers, endless budgets. By sitting on the boards, by listening, by understanding the governance, what it allowed me to do, Nippin, is then create very small nudges into the board structure and cadence. And what do I mean by that? A lot of boards have pre-reads. So, you know, board meetings are very structured, uh, time-sensitive meetings. So you want to read your material before you even get to the boardroom so you understand 
the backgrounds, whether it's financials or whatever. So I started to build in as part of the HSE section, HSE pre-read, nothing long, nothing big, uh, layman's terms, because you have, uh, you have finance people, you have engineers, you know, you have people who just don't understand the way that you do. And then by the time we get to the board and you have your time slot, it is really what did you take away from that read or how do we apply this in the organization? So using those sort of forums and formats to build in a little bit of uh, knowledge, because one question that was in my mind before is who educates the board on safety? Where do they get their knowledge and training from? Who tells them when there's something new and emerging or this practice is no longer done? And I didn't have an answer for that before. And I started to see it even in board discussions, you know, when people, for example, would look at leading and lagging indicators, like they would look at financials. There was no context behind the numbers. So when the numbers look good, it's like, yes, HSE is doing well. And I said, well, no, green checks don't mean we're doing well and, and we need to ask different questions. So, so that was just some of the ways that I kind of use my knowledge. And, you know, in the beginning, I used to have the, the corporate secretary always tell me, well, take off your HSE hat and put on your shareholders hat, but still keep the HSE lens you know, so that you are representing the shareholder, but you are still looking through the lens of a practitioner. Fascinating. So, so board has once one way of, of communicating, uh, one language, one kind of priorities. And what is it that you actually did or do to influence the board uh, to, to invest in safety? Give me a concrete example of that. The, the best examples I could give was really for the companies that had incidents and had fatalities. There was no better a business case to say, here's why we ought to invest in safety. But being in a conglomerate where you have subsidiaries that don't relate to your business, but they're all part of your family, you can use the examples to say, here's what could happen to us. Uh, a lot of times you'd find that companies that do very well from a safety perspective, and when I say do well, optics-wise, numbers look good, they don't have incidents, you know, you may be in a position to think, well, all is well here, but that's not the case. High hazard business as the ones that I'm in, investments and upgrades, um, things like process safety always has to be in the mind of the board of directors because if things happen, it's gonna go wrong in a very bad way. And what we do is we use cases that are international cases or podcasts, like yours or Todd's to share how things can unravel really quickly. So those were some of the ways that I would convince. But luckily for me, Nippon, the chairman of these companies or the chairman, uh, and even in, in my current job, they were aligned to the value that safety is not a priority because priorities change, but safety is a prerequisite for how we operate. So I always had that on my side because it's an uphill battle if the senior people, chairman, the board does not share that view. So that worked for me. Fascinating uh, at many levels, but, but mainly because here's a living example of somebody who sits on the board or who has sat on the board and then managed to influence. Uh, and what I'm hearing is that you need to strike a common language. 
uh, language that that can be easily discernible. I think it's in most organizations, at least from my experience, uh, that common language does not exist uh, because most. Uh, well, first of all, there are not many safety professionals who sit on the board. And even if they do, uh, I think that the, the beauty of what you did was you took time to absorb how the board actually interacts before, even before you start to intervene. In a way, you were trying to understand the business context before you start to influence something. And I think this is something which is, which is sadly missing in the safety world, that they are too quick to, to judge, to, to control, to manipulate things without taking the time to actually understand things. And I think, yeah, something very unique about uh, your, your, your position. Yeah, and I'd have to say, Nipin, being a, a board of director made me an equal at the level of the CEO. A lot of times when you have agency people, they report to the CEO. So there's power distance ratio, there's all sorts of dynamics that go on there. But at being a board of director means that when I had a voice, it was not this safety person crying out in the wind it was as an equal weight of a board of director especially when there was a fatality you know and i, I would have shared with you i was a, a, on a board when there was a fatality and i was advised by a lawyer that uh, i had even a higher burden on me as a board of director because i was a safety person um, because i was a subject matter expert uh, so, so therefore, not only did it carry weight, it carried a bigger burden, which I also respected and recognized that, you know, it's not just about the title, you know, the package. There is a massive burden that comes wearing that kind of hat at that level when something happens uh, in the organization. But on the flip side, wearing that hat and changing the culture of the organization by changing the language of the board and influencing the chairman and having the board then influence the CEO is a powerful, powerful place to be. And I saw it for myself, you know, and, and it's not something that I see often. So, so that's also something to think about. Fascinating. There's an element of ignorance here in, in many organizations, as I see it, that boardrooms are so disconnected from control rooms. Uh, and people, most of most people lose hope there. But I think what, what I learned from this uh, session with you today was no, if, if there is a proper representation of a safety professional who has the empathy, who has the understanding, who or who takes time to understand the board's concerns before they superimpose their own knowledge and, and, and experience in them, I think there's a huge opportunity to, to create a level playing field where either party kind of listens to each other. Uh, and also, what was also interesting was what you said about, you know, how... Uh, those difficult moments when you have a fatality or, or an injury, how that becomes such a transformational moment for, for somebody in, the, in your position to, to leverage that into a meaningful change. You, you use the word burden, but you have the accountability. And with that accountability comes that, can, comes that desire to, to do something then, to change things. Yes, and, and, and time and again, we, we see that this opportunity is lost because that knowledge, that expertise is not available in the boardroom to be able to, to, to speak in a way that, that doesn't threaten people, but brings them to, to a level of understanding. Yeah, and I think, I think Nipin, you're right, you know, to be in a boardroom at the level of different board of, board of directors and not sit, sit with them as a peer, I can also relate to their topics. So, you know, whether it 
their uh, accountant background or the things that they are subject matter experts in. And I could also see how safety impacts their areas and how their areas impact safety. And I think I, I was ignorant to the fact that sometimes boards or businesses are so constrained and operate within such constraints that you really have to be almost innovative sometimes to manage safety uh, because you don't have all the resources or the business just isn't doing well at the time. Um, so that helped me a lot as well to understand business context. Very powerful. One of the things I keep saying uh, that the safety profession of the future needs to have a very thorough understanding of how the business operates. How, what is the business context? Where is the revenue coming from? If you do not understand where the revenue is coming from, how are you going to put any meaningful constraints? Which is what safety is all about, isn't it? How do mm -hmm. you put constraints, uh, controls on profitability if you don't know where that revenue is actually coming from? So mm -hmm. you need to have that meaningful conversation. What a beautiful insight. Thank you, Cindy. Really enjoyed that. I always enjoy having conversations with you, Nippin. You, you force me to also think differently so that, that I can reshape in my mind uh, what I want to bring out of the experience. So really appreciate it. It was a really good, good conversation. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope the time you spent was worthwhile. If the podcast has made you think, slow down and reflect, I have achieved my purpose. Please share it with others in your community. That way, the message goes far and wide. I spend a lot of time thinking, researching, and producing meaningful content. If there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about, please let me know. If I can, I will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you. If you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me, please feel free to be in touch, particularly if there's something you don't agree with. Disagreements are a lot of fun. I wish to also remind you that all my podcasts, related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website, novellus.solutions. You can also get in touch with me on the same website or through LinkedIn, Twitter, or my personal website, nipinanand.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.